0: I have a tip for our listeners so one of the things that i always do i clean my wine glasses gotta clean them after i use them which is like every day so yeah. i i clean the wine glass and then i set it down on the counter and it's got like all the water in it well generally mm-hmm. if i'm cleaning the wine glass it's because i want to use the wine glass so i generally will pick it up and kind of shake the water out um here's my tip for you guys never ever ever do that because There's this thing called um, force, and it uh, can break things. And I'm not saying when you accidentally bane the glass on the counter, that will break it too. But I'm saying, like, sometimes you'll be swinging it, and the stem breaks, and then somehow you really don't know, but you stab yourself in the leg with the stem. So I'm just going to say... This is going to be a little bit graphic, so sorry for you guys who are a little squeamish. Also, if you're squeamish, I don't know how you listen to this. That too. (laughs) But so I'm just standing there stunned. I didn't even feel like any pain. And the next thing I know, I can just feel blood gushing out of my leg. And it's filling up my house shoe. And it's like this warm sensation and i stood there for maybe like 15 seconds like holy shit what the fuck do i do and then i start yelling at charlie because i'm like get away because there's blood and glass and (laughs) and and then i'm just like well okay shit what do i do what do i do what do i do so i get to the bathroom i get to the tub and i'm like holding pressure on my leg because you know obviously pressure makes the bleeding stop there is so much blood at this point there's so much blood so I try to call our mom, and thank God she didn't answer. But you know who I called next?
1: Me. Which, here's my little tidbit of advice for y'all. Don't call someone and just be like, I just stabbed myself, there's blood everywhere. Like, I, Because my first thought is like, okay, um, go to the hospital. <laughs> Actually, what I said was, Brittany, you have an HSA, you can afford it, just go. because as millennials that's what we think of when we think of the hospital
0: it's reality um but the good news is i am okay the bleeding stopped really quickly after doing a couple of squirt like literally blood squirting out of my leg which is horrifying i just honestly thinking about it right now i'm getting a little bit queasy because that's one thing we may talk about things that are a whole hell of a lot worse than accidentally stabbing yourself in the leg but There is something about seeing my own blood coming out of my body. I was passed out. Not from blood loss. It wasn't like that amount of blood. I probably lost about, as Tyler said, his measurement is perfect. (laughs) Like half a wine's glass worth. But um, number one, (laughs) you spill a half glass of red wine. It looks like a shit ton of liquid. Because, I mean, Mm -hmm. it's four ounces. It's a decent amount. But... I almost passed out on the phone with Tyler or or vomited. I didn't know what was going to happen. And I start yelling at him to hang up.
1: Hang up, (laughs) hang
0: up, hang up.
1: And I'm like, okay.
0: So like, all is fine. I texted him right after and I was like, sorry, I'm okay. But like, this is why I don't give blood. Um, I've done it a few times. And every time I try to do it, they have to do, like, the thing under my nose because I pass out. It's just the sight of my own blood leaving my body. I'm like, no, 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 no. You're supposed to stay in.
1: <laughs> you faint like a Victorian woman.
0: <laughs> it's the only thing. The only thing that I've ever experienced that makes me faint is my own blood. Uh, but you-
1: See, I used to give blood all the time. Like, see, me seeing my own blood doesn't do anything i'm like okay okay, yep there it is i'm even that weird ass person who watches them put the needle in
0: (laughs) what is wrong with you
1: (laughs) no they're like turn your head and i'm like no i wanna see Uh, (laughs) exactly in that voice they're like
0: sir can you please leave we don't want your blood
1: (laughs) (laughs) and i'm like i know you want my plasma i have the universal plasma but um regardless does not bother me can't donate anymore because of the fda but because if you're gay and all those things which is super fun so fun fact if y'all didn't know if you are a man who has had sex with another man you cannot give blood for a year after that and it then it just like continues Every time you have sex. So, that's fun.
0: It's so stupid. Um, Well, and they still have, like, the tattoo rule and whatnot, which is why I couldn't do it for a long time. Also because I just can't. Um, But, you know, needless to say, my apartment will now not pass a luminol test. Um, also, Charlie helped me clean up the blood, which is so gross. Sorry, you guys, if that... Freaks you out, but he is yeah, an animal. Charlie <laughs> has
1: now has the taste for human blood.
0: So I'm a little bit worried he's going to start gnawing on my ankles at night. We'll see. So far, so good. <laughs> but you know what? I will say I sent my family like the picture of my shoe, and it was my brand new pair of house shoes that um, my mom got me for Christmas. So I was so pissed. They're like drenched in blood. But you know what? I'm a woman. I know how to clean up blood stains. I got all that blood out. I can wear my house shoes now.
1: (laughs) I literally, we were on the phone like after this and you were like, damn, I I have to get it out of my house shoes. And I was like, oh, just washed on like cold. And you were like, Tyler, I've been a woman for 30 something years. I think I know how to get blood out of things. I was like, no, you're right.
0: (laughs) It's true. But I did. I got the blood out of my house shoes and my white rug.
1: Which is impressive.
0: Hey, cold water immediately run it under cold water don't don't do warm water warm water makes stains set and just another tip for our listeners for when you spill your red wine that's what i'm talking about obviously or if you have a period stain because let's be real that's actually where i learned this um but or red wine i've spilled red wine on my white rug more times than i'd like to admit and there was one night when i was too tipsy to go to the store to get some oxyclean because again it's wine um but if you pour like cold water on it and then start soaking it up the cold water mixes with whatever that dark liquid was and you can basically like press it all out and then if there's a little bit of a faint like color still and it's you know if it's a thing like a rug and it's damp Pour some salt over it. And so while it dries, the salt will pull out that liquid. And essentially, you're going to end up with pink salt that you definitely throw away. Don't use it. But there you go. And that's
1: how you get Himalayan salt.
0: <laughs> if you didn't know, that's why it's pink. <laughs>
1: it's from the blood.
0: Um, But that's my story. My traumatic story. My leg hurts today. That's for sure. Uh, but thank God I didn't have to go get stitches. I've never had to take myself to get stitches. So... I'm glad I didn't have to do that.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, knock on wood, I haven't had to take myself to get stitches either. There's one instance that I should have, and now I just have a big nasty scar to prove it. But I still have never had to take myself to like the, I don't know, urgent care for being like, help, I'm bleeding.
0: Well, but the good thing is, that's what urgent care is for, and so if you do hurt yourself, like, definitely take yourself there if you if you need stitches or something. Alright, well, this is Blood and Wine, and I'm Brittany.
1: And I'm Tyler, and we support urgent care and not stabbing ourselves with wine glasses.
0: I'm kind of scared of wine stems right now, and like, honestly, I just, I don't know. I keep replaying it in my head because I don't really know what happened, and also, th- there were times living alone where I'm like, oh, shit, I'm going to die by myself. And that was definitely <laughs> one of them. But why, like, that was my initial thought instead of, like, I don't know, scream for help. I live in an apartment complex. No one would yeah, come. Yeah, but you also
1: lock your door, so.
0: <laughs> um. Anyway, I just had that experience that I can't stop replaying in my head. And that's there. And my leg hurts. There we go.
1: Fair. I always just think about, because I live on my own. If I died or went to the hospital or something, who is going to feed Max and the cats?
0: Let's be real. The cats would eat Max.
1: I mean, that is true. Max, run. Hide. Fight. Oh, those are all the steps if you... Whatever. Actually, Um,
0: if you die in your apartment, they would all eat you, and then the cats would eat Max.
1: I hope at the point that they've completely (laughs) eaten me, because, you know, let's... 40 pound bag of cat food lasts them (laughs) quite a long time i weigh a little bit more than that so at the point where they are done eating me and ready to move on to max um i hope someone would have checked in on me even if it's like hey you haven't paid rent this month
0: (laughs) (laughs) which that's how you're found (laughs) i'm just kidding
1: complex being like hey No, I would be found because you would have called me seven times that day just to chat. I wouldn't (laughs) have picked up any of them.
0: I know. Basically, you wouldn't even have the opportunity to be dead yet before someone was coming out your front door. So. True. I'm not going to let it happen. But anyway, let's get into this week's episode. First off, just want to remind you guys about Patreon hop on over there. We've got a lot of different levels, a lot of different murder minis, which are cases that we don't do on full episodes, but we've got murder minis over there. We're at like 38 episodes right now, so quite a bit of content. There's also bottle talk, as well as a couple other fun things like directing your own episode, picking a topic for us. You've heard it. You love it. Make sure to go check it out if you haven't.
1: Also, while you're at it, make sure to Uh, Subscribe to us on your podcast listening platform of choice. We're on all major listening platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, all the things. Check us out. Subscribe.
0: So, Tyler, you had to pick the topic for this week's episode because I brought the big guns last week with Dean Coral. You did. So what did you pick?
1: I picked how to get away with murder. Almost literally, Or people that got away with murder. Um, So, not the Keating Five. But, I wanted to dive in on people that basically got away with murder. And not so much in the way of, like, oh, someone never got caught. Because that's a whole different topic. I'm meaning people that got caught and went to trial and, for one reason or another, got away with it. uh, Whether it is they did it and got some real lenient sentencing, whether it's one of those that they, quote unquote, didn't do it, <clears throat> OJ, allegedly, but, you know, different things like that. I wanted to dive in on people who got away with murder.
0: And this topic is honestly horrifying, and it's just another way that sometimes the justice system fails, um, or sometimes the rules of the justice system result in in a failure but it's like shit they did everything right but this person got away with murder because of a technicality or whatever it's scary like sometimes innocent people being convicted of murder it just it's another like again like i said sometimes the justice system fails yeah but before we get into our two horrific cases that we picked um we need to get into our wine so tyler what wine did you pick
1: so the wine that I chose is the 2015 Roca della Maci Rubizzo Toscana from Chianti, Italy. It's a lot of words. It is, um, but it
0: sounds good.
1: It looks good. Um, it was like 10 bucks, and it is, I think, officially the last wine that I will be getting from the little grocery store bodega that's next to my apartment, because I think I've had all of them. It's not the sweet ones. There's a couple that are like texas lano red and i'm like no
0: <laughs> don't drink that one um yeah you've literally gone through an entire store's wine cabinet how do you feel i mean it's
1: been a while it took me a year
0: i mean that's fair and it's a pretty small shelf so
1: yeah it's you know i mean it's definitely a it's not a shelf it's a
0: like a it's cu- a cubby area it's it's
1: a pretty big big cubby area but you know it's fine large like,
0: walk-in pantry
1: Yeah, yeah, of wine. Whatever, it's little bodega wine. But, um, yeah, so I'm gonna have to start, like, I don't know, driving to get wine. There's a liquor store on the other side of the major street, but I don't know if I want to walk there. Yeah, yeah, Brittany's telling me no.
0: I don't think you want to walk there either.
1: Regardless, so this wine, didn't find a ton-ton of information on it, but I did find some reviews that I was like, ooh, this sounds fun. So it is a blend of Sangiovese and Merlot. This person put that it's herbish on the nose with a bit of dark fruit. Flavors of plum, black cherry, cocoa, and prune.
0: Did they not say herbaceous?
1: Nope, they said herbish.
0: Okay, just making sure.
1: Yep, yeah, no. They said herbish on the nose. (laughs) Medium tannins, and they said it was a great value for the price and very enjoyable. Now, the person said, a light and fruity Toscana, a slightly dry finish, left me short. Still, after breathing, it became much more drinkable. <laughs> I don't know who was breathing, but after someone <laughs> breathed, it became enjoyable. After they, um,
0: they stopped being short and started yeah. to breathe again, the wine was pretty good. <laughs> you know?
1: Um, they said it was great with Italian, which I would hope obviously. so. uh and last person said that it's ripe cherry and some savory notes of olive and bay leaf on the palate rich cherry and sweet basil perfect acidity delicate tannins short to moderate finish not complex or powerful but just plain delicious a great value hey that's and this was like 10 or 11 bucks
0: nice that's two two out of however many you read that said it was a great value I know,
1: and I i don't know, I think the second person liked it in the end, but yeah, so, and also, it's a screw top, which is wonderful.
0: Nice, always good. And you are going first today, so it can breathe a little bit, because it sounds like that needs to happen, so you don't get too short.
1: <laughs> because I'm about to get short, y'all. <laughs> I am a 5'9 fireball. <laughs> <laughs> That's in my Tinder profile.
0: Um, I have not seen you use that wine glass in a really long time. Are all your wine glasses dirty?
1: <laughs> no, they're all clean. I just, this wine glass to me looks like the perfect wine glass for Italian reds. I don't know.
0: I agree with it's that. It's
1: angular. Ooh, it smells good.
0: It's nice and dark. Like, it looks like a pretty, like, ruby or maybe garnet color. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it smells good. It smells like a Chianti or a Sangiovese is the most I'm getting from it.
0: Is it mostly Sangiovese with a little bit of Merlot? Do you know the percentages?
1: No, I was looking on the bottle and I have no idea. But I'm gonna let this breathe and while it does, tell me about the wine you are drinking today.
0: Alright, so I am drinking the 2018 California Roots Chardonnay. This is a wine that you can find at Target for $5. It's Target's wine. So much like Trader Joe's has Two Buck Chuck, Target has California Roots.
1: Ooh, Market Pantry brand wine, basically.
0: Basically. Um, at California Roots has five different wines. They've got a Pinot Grigio, a Chardonnay, a Moscato, a Red Blend, and a Cabernet Sauvignon. So I decided to try the Chardonnay for today's episode and the, the wines, they do not list the place of origin uh, of the grapes other than that it's California. And because it is like this super cheap price range, the grapes most likely come from a hot fertile region like Central Valley so vine pear actually did a blind taste testing with some sommeliers for the california roots wines and so reading through that is how i got a lot of these tasting notes because there's not really much on the back um it gives you a little bit but it's kind of your basic chardonnay description when the sommeliers tried the chardonnay They said it was a little bit overripe, almost like rotting pineapple and candied green apple fruit that were dominating the Chardonnay. There are notes that give it an illusion of oak, but that it clearly comes from like oak chips or powder and not actually being fermented in an oak barrel, which that doesn't surprise me. At this price point, we've talked Mm. about it before. A lot of the times you're going to get some artificial flavors. And so they said this wine, it's fat, but it's not really buttery or creamy like you would get in a high-quality oak Chardonnay. And as it turns out, the sommelier said this was their least favorite of the California Roots wines and that it tasted the most manufactured. They did also say though, it's a, it's a wine for people who don't want to spend a lot of money, but seek a richer style of wine. And like an Okie Chardonnay is considered this richer style. They estimated that this bottle cost between eight and $12, which, hey, that's our price range. So another thing that you've got to remember, these are sommeliers. They're drinking like $500 bottles also. So their comparison is like, really really widespread and this was a five dollar bottle this is not what they're used to drinking but when they did say like it'd be good for someone who's wanting to try like a a nicer like richer flavor of wine but can't afford it to me says okay maybe it's not as bad as they let on um yeah buzzfeed also did a review of these california roots wines because again it's like we're getting a new two buck chuck out there five dollars is such a great like price for a bottle of wine and at Target I think if you buy like six or more you get 10% off or something a lot of places do that if you buy six bottles okay BuzzFeed said that this could easily pass as a $20 bottle of wine, and they they recommend that you bring it to your next, like, BYOB or, like, dinner party that you have with friends so you can impress everyone with your excellent wine selection skills. Another bonus that they said was that this Chardonnay doesn't have that vinegary aftertaste that a lot of cheap wines kind of have. So when we look at this comparison between the sommeliers and the BuzzFeed staff, It's clear that it's up to interpretation and preferences whether or not you're going to like this wine. So (laughs) I'm either about to drink some nasty shit or it's going to be a decent, more inexpensive uh, Chardonnay.
1: Yeah. Well, I think the big difference is it's between wine experts and wine drinkers.
0: Absolutely. And that's why I wanted to make it clear, like, yeah, I feel like a sommelier is... Going to have that type of opinion about a cheaper wine and not dogging on the cheaper wine. Just like they've been trained to taste artificial flavors. Like they know the difference in this was fermented in an oak barrel and this one was made with oak chips. And I don't know that taste difference. I've had both, but it doesn't mean I can pick it out. They can. Yeah. That's why they do all the extensive training.
1: Yeah. Here, show me the bottle before you open it.
0: So they all have this very simple label. And this one is, you know, your white wine shaped Chardonnay bottle with this like very dark yellow, yellow orange label that just says California roots. It's got a bear on it. It's got a bear on the top, similar to Toasted Head that has the bear. Toasted Head has the wax on the top, though, which I always thought was really cool. I mean, it's kind of a pain in the ass to get out because you have to like dig a knife in there, which is scary. And again, at this point, I'm just afraid I'm going to stab myself with anything, any sharp objects. But it does have a cork, so I'm going to get into this. It's definitely not a real cork. It's plastic for sure, which, again, not that's not necessarily a bad thing. We're running out of cork in the world, people. So I know.
1: Please leave the Amazon alone.
0: Which, honestly, I don't understand why companies do the plastic cork instead of just doing a screw top. Probably a pricing thing. I don't know. All right, let's see what this looks like. It's a little bit lighter in color than I thought it would be.
1: Yeah, it's a pretty light Chardonnay.
0: It smells similar to like a yellowtail, where it has that almost banana smell, where it's, mm. which I get, I guess the sommelier said like something that's overripe. And you know, when a banana's getting too brown, it smells sweet.
1: Yeah. God, I fucking love bananas. I do too.
0: Just,
1: side note. Side note. Um, love okay. bananas. Well, cheers. Cheers. This one's pretty good. It's definitely just a very straightforward. I I taste more of the Merlot than the Sangiovese. Really, it's more on that velvety side, but it does have a good amount of acid. And I had Mexican food earlier today, so <laughs> my acid reflux is already acting up. So this is gonna be fun.
0: Oh my god! Remember when we were just like living on tums <laughs> at Christmas? Which is the last time I had lots of Mexican food and red wine. Yeah. So this one is not a bad wine. I don't hate it. It is sweeter than I thought it would be, which I'm understanding the pineapple and candied green apple. It's a little bit sweeter than I like in a Chardonnay. However, it does have a little bit of that heavy on the tongue, which comes from that oakiness. And it finishes out well, and I it, it's a subtle oak. It's not, like, overpowering. This is not a very buttery wine. It's sweeter, but it doesn't have those crisp flavors that you would get out of, like, a French Chardonnay. Um, it does stick to California-style smooth oak. It is definitely worth the $5. I mean, I would, I would personally probably not buy this wine again, but... That's again because it's got that sweeter profile but it is definitely not a bad wine so i would say this is a fantastic value for five dollars especially if you need um multiple bottles of wine for like a house party or if you need to grab a bottle of wine to take over to like a byob or a dinner thing this is perfect like i don't spend more than five to seven dollars on a bottle of wine that i'm breaking over for like a party or something because Why? Like, you're trying so many different kinds of wine generally at those types Mm. of events that you may as well not bring like a $30 bottle. Unless you want to. You do you. But I recommend it. If you like Chardonnays, give this one a try. It's not, um, I feel like I've said this like four times already, but it's not my flavor profile, but it's not a bad wine. Nice.
1: I'm interested to see what um, the sommeliers and the BuzzFeed people thought about all the wines.
0: Yeah, um, there's definitely some information out there on both the articles I looked at, one on VinePair and one on BuzzFeed. All that being said, I'm definitely still going to drink this wine, so it's clearly not bad. I think in the whole time we've done this podcast, there's been like one wine I haven't finished. I mean, it's rare for me not to finish a wine. Yeah. All right. Well, we've got our wines. So how about you tell me about what case you picked? Who got away with murder?
1: Well, the case that I chose is The Murder of Vincent Chin. And the sources that I used, I used Wikipedia, the Wikipedia page for The Murder of Vincent Chin, an article on Listverse by Morris M., an article on NBC News by Francis Kai Hua Huang, and then the Museum of Chinese in America. So... Vincent Chin, he was born on May 18th of 1955 in the Guangdong province of China. And in 1961, when he was about six years old, he was adopted by David and Lily Chin, who lived in Metro Detroit. So he moved to America. Mm -hmm. Flash forward 21 years to June 19th of 1982. He's 27 years old. And he was celebrating with his friends at his bachelor party in Detroit, Michigan. He was engaged and his wedding was just eight days away on June
0: 27th. Ooh, I already don't like that setup and where this is heading. I mean, obviously, you've you've already told me he's going to be murdered. But, like, it sucks when you introduce, like, and this is what was going on in their life. And I'm like, oh, that sounds so amazing. Oh, fuck, you're about to be murdered.
1: Yeah. So, they're at this nightclub with his friends. He's doing uh, his bachelor party. They're just having a good time. And he runs into these two white auto workers, Ronald Evans and Michael Nitz. So, little bit of a background on kind of what's going on. So, Detroit, and in the 80s especially, is kind of the auto capital of the U.S. It's where like the Ford plant is. It's where just a lot of car manufacturing is. Mm -hmm. And in the early 80s, we've kind of mentioned it, we touched on it last week's episode, but in the early 80s, there was a big recession happening and it was impacting a lot of jobs across the U.S., especially in the auto car-making area. Also, while this is happening... Um, the presence of Japanese auto manufacturers is growing in the u s so companies like toyota Honda, Mitsubishi are growing, and you also have these american made manufacturers like losing people, losing jobs, according to witnesses. Evans tells chin they're they bump into each other, and Evans tells him. It's because of you little motherfuckers that we're out of work.
0: Oh my god. Oh shit. I didn't even think about that being where this is going.
1: Yeah. Well, first off, I mean, Vincent Chin is Chinese, not Japanese. I mean, not, not that any of this is okay, but, like, he's not even Japanese.
0: Right. I just meant, like, the racial tensions.
1: Yeah. This case is huge for Asian American civil rights in the United States. So they get in this fight... Uh, Vincent like throws a drink at him after this. Everyone's drunk. It's a nightclub. They wind up getting thrown out by the bouncers, and the fight continues in the parking lot. But Evans like gets a baseball bat out of his truck, and so Vincent and his friends like run off.
0: That turns like really violent.
1: Yeah. So Evans and Nitz then start searching the neighborhood for like half an hour. Looking for Chin and his friends. Like, they're fucking searching for him. And they even paid another guy $20 to help look for him. Eventually, they find Vincent at a McDonald's restaurant in the parking lot. Vincent tries to escape, but Nitz holds him down while Evans just starts beating him in the head with this baseball bat until his head cracks open.
0: Did they know him, like did they were these coworkers, or they just no. saw him, and they were blaming him?
1: They just saw him and were blaming him.
0: I don't even have words for that,
1: yeah, so a police officer saw this happening. they he saw the beating and said that Evans was swinging the bat like he was swinging for a home run.
0: Jeez, yeah.
1: Vincent was rushed to Henry Ford Hospital. He was unconscious, but four days later, after being in a coma, he died on June 23rd of 82. So, at the time, government officials, politicians, and a lot of very prominent law organizations, they dismissed any theories that civil rights aspects were any part of the beating. And a local chapter of the American Civil Liberties Union, like, they said they didn't even see any connection between civil rights and his death. They were like, oh no, it was just a beating. Like, it was a drunk people brawl. There wasn't any kind of racial or civil rights issues going on with this.
0: Well, and I will say, if they didn't know what was said in the background, I could see that. But if they had any evidence as to what this actually was about, and I actually kind of take back what I just said, because if this is what was going on in the city at the time, that should be their, I mean, almost their first assumption, right?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think at this time, Asian Americans, like, were not protected under the civil rights bill.
0: In the 80s?
1: Yeah, I didn't know that either. So, at first, the only group that was kind of being like, "Mm, we need to look at this from a civil rights lens was a group called the American Citizens for Justice. And they supported the theory that existing civil rights laws needed to apply to Asian Americans, which, yeah. I
0: mean, of course they do.
1: I assumed that it had been written in a way of like, it just says race, creed, national origin. So I, I didn't know It wasn't more all-inclusive, but it wasn't. Eventually, the national body of the National Lawyers Guild also endorsed their efforts to include Asian Americans under that bill. But before any of that, we'd have to kind of go back to their trial. Because, y'all, if you're not already real pissed off, get ready to be enraged.
0: Oh, joy. My favorite emotion, rage. Yay!
1: Basically. So, Evans was arrested and taken into custody at the scene of the crime by the two off-duty police officers that saw the beating. And then Nitz was later captured. And they were... Um, I believe Evans was Nitz's stepdad. Or the other way around. They were related and also co-workers. Or previously co-workers. They got... They had been let go in the auto industry. So, that's how they know each other. But... They're convicted in county court for manslaughter by the Wayne County Circuit Judge Charles Kaufman after they had a plea bargain that brought the charges down from second-degree murder. And so what this meant is part of their plea of it going from second-degree murder to manslaughter. They served no jail time. They were given three years probation. They were fined $3,000 and then ordered to pay $780 in court costs.
0: So basically That's they just it. got probation.
1: Yeah. And they straight up murdered this man and were seen by two police officers. It's not like there was no question of did this happen or did they do this?
0: Okay, so obviously with this topic, we knew going in that being enraged was going to be an emotion. But are you kidding me? Do we know why it got diminished
1: Oh, yeah. So, this is even more enraging. So, there was obviously a lot of, like, what the fuck, especially from the Asian American community, and there were protests from the American Citizens for Justice, and in a response to a letter they sent to the judge, he said, These weren't the kind of men you send to jail you don't make the punishment fit the crime you make the punishment fit the criminal
0: no that is not how it works at all who the fuck is this person
1: he is the circuit judge no for the county
0: yeah okay no like a thousand times he's fucking trash this is ridiculous
1: you absolutely make the punishment fit the crime And don't make the punishment fit the crime. That's literally the opposite. I don't care if this is the worst person you've ever seen. If they were jaywalking, you give them a ticket. And if someone is a straight stand-up kind of person, which, first off, Evans and Nitz were not.
0: No, they don't sound like Um, it at all.
1: But, you know, regardless, you have the best person ever. If fucking Oprah murdered someone, Oprah needs to go to jail. I don't care who they are. The punishment should fit the crime. Not
0: the person. 100%. Yeah. 110%. 200%. I'm so pissed.
1: Oh, oh, I was livid doing this research. And also, just for more perspective, a DUI will usually get you in worse trouble than this. Than straight up beating a man to death in front of police officers. So this verdict obviously very much angered the Asian American community in the Detroit area and all around the country. Helen Zia, who's a journalist, and Liza Chan, who's a lawyer, they led the fight for federal charges. And that actually did result in the two of them being accused of two counts of violating Chin's civil rights. But there's a lot of legal minutia for this. So, for these charges to stick... And to be a thing, it wasn't enough that Evans had injured Chin, but that, quote, a substantial motivating factor for the defendant's actions was Mr. Chin's race, color, or national origin, and because Mr. Chin had been enjoying a place of entertainment which serves the public. So basically, they had to prove that it was his, because of his race, in a public place. And There was a lot of uphill battle that they had to face for this because there were mitigating factors that could get in the way, such as they were all drunk. Yeah. And could the argument then be made if like, oh, it was just a drunken brawl gotten out of hand? Because obviously that's what the defense is going to try.
0: Yeah. I mean, the defense's job is finding their strongest argument.
1: And- Apparently, the prosecution, them proving that these racial slurs were uttered, wasn't enough for conviction. Wasn't enough to prove that the attack was racially motivated, just because they had uttered racial slurs. Which I'm like, but what
0: shouldn't? um, I disagree with that because I feel like that does point towards it being a racially motivated crime.
1: Yeah. Also, the defense found that the witness who overheard him say it's because of you motherfuckers were that were out of work, had also later received some clemency on a jail sentence for a prostitution charge, which could be seen to look like the police or the government or whatever was trying to cut her a deal to get her testimony.
0: Even though it wasn't related, it just looked yeah. like it could be. Yeah. A lot of things could look like other things, but they're not.
1: Exactly. So, in 1984... The federal civil rights case against them found Evans guilty on the second count and sentenced him to 25 years in prison, with Nitz being acquitted on both counts. But after an appeal, Evans' conviction was overturned in 86 because the appeals court found that an attorney had improperly coached the prosecution witnesses. They then had a retrial that was moved out of Detroit to Cincinnati for a fair trial due to all the publicity and everything. That's
0: good, at least.
1: And a jury cleared Evans of all charges in nineteen eighty seven.
0: Good idea. Didn't have the right outcome.
1: Yeah. A civil suit for the unlawful death of Vincent Chin was settled out of court in March of eighty seven. With Nitz ordered to pay fifty thousand and Evans ordered to pay one point five million, but I mean, as we've discussed before, civil suits a lot of times are more for show rather than impact
0: well, and kind of thing i mean o j Simpson, as an example, he was found guilty in the civil suit, and he had to pay the Goldmans a ton of money and It's like mm-hmm. he I think still has never paid them back. I think that's why no I'm pretty sure that's why they got the rights to his book because that's how they were going to get the money and it just but that's not what we talk about we don't talk about the fact that he was found guilty in the civil suit of at fault for uh, Nicole and Ron's murders we think of the state's case and how he was found not guilty. Which also, OJ is a huge one that we could have used for this uh, episode, but we've already done it. Um, Tired already yeah. covered that case. But obviously, OJ Simpson is one of the biggest examples of getting away with murder, allegedly.
1: Yeah. And, it, I mean, yeah. And one thing I do want to mention, as much as it's, like, for show. I mean, Evans was ordered to... They were ordered to pay this amount of money. And I think... Evans, it's like two hundred a month or twenty percent of his income each month, whichever's more, or something like that.
0: Yeah, because they can take um, it straight from your paycheck.
1: Yeah, he was um, ordered to pay that. Vincent was interned at Detroit's Forest Lawn Cemetery, and in September of nineteen eighty-seven, his mom, Lily Chin, she moved from Oak Park back to her hometown of Guangzhou, China, because. She just kept being reminded of her son's murder, and she did return to the U.S. in 2001 for medical treatment, but she died on June 9th of 2002. Prior to her death, though, Lily Chin established a scholarship in her son's memory to be administered by American Citizens for Justice, and the city put up a a monument for him as well so he wouldn't be forgotten, but one of the most surprising things of this case is that how much it's not known widely
0: no um, and how
1: much the treatment of asian americans in the u.s has not been okay for in a lot of ways for a long time but even this the fact that in the 80s it was difficult to get civil rights protections if you're asian american and his mom was quoted as saying like this was two white men who beat an Asian man to death and they got no time in jail. If this had been two Asian men beating a white man to death, they would have either been in jail their entire lives or been executed.
0: Well, and that's what's so astonishing to me is that I didn't realize Asian Americans had this civil injustice for so long and or, or that it wasn't originally written into civil rights that they were a part of that i i I, like you thought it was something that was more all-inclusive but i mean this world's pretty fucked up and so i am i wish i were more surprised that it wasn't written in that way but i'm not and i know that's sick but that's the reality that we live in and yeah i wish this case was more well known so i'm glad that you did it so you know The word can get out, Vincent's name can be out there, and more justice, more civil rights for all. I keep thinking about what you said in a previous episode, how equal rights is not a pie, less for, or more for someone else does not equal less for you. Like, it's not a fucking pie. Mm -hmm. It's equal rights for all.
1: Well, and it just, it, it still horrifies me with this case, but the two men that killed him never spent a single day in jail.
0: It's heartbreaking. It's disgusting.
1: Yeah, it's fucking horrifying. But that is the case of the murder of Vincent Chin. Brittany, tell me about your case and your person who got away with
0: murder. I hope you're ready to continue the emotion of rage.
1: Oh, joy.
0: So I'm doing the case of Robert Durst, specifically the murder of Morris Black. The-
1: oh, God. Damn it!
0: Right. I know, listeners, a lot of y'all have probably heard the story. There is a documentary on HBO called The Jinx. I'm really just going to plug Watch That Documentary. Um, I will talk about it later and spoil some big things. So if you don't already know them, I'll give a spoiler warning. But seriously, if, if you have not watched that documentary, it's been out since 2015. Go watch it. Tyler, I'm not talking to you. I know you're not going to. I won't. <laughs> um, but I used quite a few sources because, as you'll later see, Robert Durst is back in the news. Um, so there's a lot going on right now. The first is an article from Houstonia Mag by Laura Furmericas. Mericas. Another is an article from ABC News by, and there's four authors of this one, Megan Keenly, Ben Candia, Joshua Hoyos, and Jonah Lustig. I also used an article from Biography by John Calhoun, an article from the LA Times by Matt Pierce, an article in Texas Monthly by Gary Cartwright, and an article in Esquire by Adrian Westenfeld. So a little bit of background on Robert Durst. So Durst grew up uh, the son of a really wealthy New York family. They were in the real estate business, and he had a very troubled childhood uh, from the beginning. When he was seven, his 32-year-old mother either jumped or fell to her death from the roof of the family house in Scarsdale, New York, and Robert witnessed this.
1: Oh my god.
0: So it traumatized him, and he had years of counseling that followed this. And then one of the biggest stories, and a lot of us when we first heard about Robert Durst, I mean, if you were alive at this time, but... You've definitely heard about it if you've heard about him at all. In 1982, Durst's semi estranged wife, Kathleen, she was in the process of finishing her medical degree. She disappeared without a trace. For some reason, Durst did not report the disappearance for four days. And his accounts of the last time he saw his wife, Kathleen, in their Westchester County home, it kept changing, or it didn't hold up. Like, they had a place in Westchester, they had a place in the city, in New York City, and he started to come under some suspicion, because his stories just kept changing. However, Kathleen Durst's body was never found, and there was never enough compelling evidence to bring charges against Durst. But... Friends who were privy to their really troubled marriage, they believed that Robert was responsible for Kathleen's disappearance and that he did something. He had one friend, though, that stood beside him the whole time, and her name was Susan Berman. She was an author who was known for her memoirs as the life of a mobster's daughter. So her dad was in the mob. And some suspected that Susan knew more about what happened to Kathy Durst and that she just wasn't talking. But in 2000, Durst maybe was suspecting that she was finally going to start talking. And Kathleen's case was reopened then in 2000. And so there's suspicions that Robert got nervous because they were set to interview Susan Berman. So days before Berman was scheduled to meet with the investigators, she was found dead in her Los Angeles home. She was shot execution style, which looks like it was made to look like a gang hit.
1: Jesus, this has given me alleged Kevin Spacey vibes. Because did you know like four people who've been set to like testify against him and stuff have been found dead under mysterious circumstances?
0: I actually just saw that a couple of days ago and I was like, Holy shit, it just keeps getting worse. Which, by the way, this is why I can't watch House of Cards. I've never seen it, and then after everything came out about him, I was like, I can't watch it.
1: Oh, absolutely not. I mean, one, I wouldn't have watched it anyway, let's be real. If I want to watch political, whatever, I'm going to watch Scandal, because fucking Kerry Washington is everything. Truth. But, yeah, there's some alleged crazy shit going on. Allegedly. Allegedly. Just to to keep us safe. I don't want us to end up dead next. Allegedly.
0: Allegedly dead.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I guess.
0: So there's obviously a lot more information out there about Kathleen's disappearance and Susan's murder. But that's not what I'm focusing on. That's just kind of the high level to get to where Robert is now in his life. Yeah. So he's 58 years old and he's already been tied to but never charged for... Two different murders. In the 90s, another thing that was kind of happening around the same time, like Kathleen has disappeared, he's friends with Susan, this is before she's murdered. So in the 90s, um, his father, Seymour Durst, eventually replaced Robert, he was the eldest son, with his younger son, Doug, as the designated successor of the family business. And so Robert was furious. And so he just left. He left the company, and he left New York. He completely walked away from the real estate company, and he moved to Galveston, Texas, where he was living as a mute woman in a $300 a month apartment.
1: Okay, what? He moved from New York as this son of a billionaire, gets cut out of the company of the line of succession, And moves, first off, moves to Galveston, Texas. Second off, he pretends to be a mute, blind woman.
0: So a lot of what he said um, is why he did this is, again, you've got to remember, he's in the news everywhere, especially in New York. He's a very well-known, very wealthy family. And so he said he had to escape from that. And he said his voice was very distinguished, which I mean, he does have a pretty distinguished voice. And he was like, people know me. People know my voice. And so he had to be mute. He couldn't even talk. And he dressed up as a woman just to disguise himself. It's fucking weird, I know.
1: What? I'm like, in one way, yes. If you move to like an actual town or like an actual city, people could recognize you. I promise you move your ass to like, I don't know, a small town, you know, into like Port Aransas. 2,000 people, and, I don't know, you start fishing or whatever, no one's gonna fucking know who you are, even if you have this distinct voice. You don't have to pretend to be a mute blind woman.
0: Not blind, just mute.
1: Oh, just a mute woman. That's weird.
0: Well, Robert Durst is weird. Trust me, if you've ever seen him in anything, which, uh, he's weird. He lived inside um, an apartment that was in a two-story building there that he rented in Galveston. And he would always, like, wear his wig when he left home. And then he would take it off a few blocks away. So he wasn't disguising himself as a woman at all times. And then in September 2001, five black garbage bags were discovered floating in the Galveston Bay. When the bags were opened, they contained arms, legs, and a torso that belonged to Robert Durst's 71-year-old neighbor, Morris Black. They found a sixth bag that was empty, presumably where Black's head had been. A little boy had been fishing in the Galveston Bay, when the, and he was the first to discover the floating trash bags. And then they were the ones that first saw the limbless torso. That was the first bag oh. that was open and kind of came to the shore. The body was not traced back to Black using physical identification, again, because he'd been dismembered and there's no head. Instead, there was a piece of a newspaper that had a sticker with the delivery address that was inside one of these trash bags with the body parts. And so police found that Black was one of the four residents that lived in this two-story apartment building. They didn't immediately connect the case to Durst because at this time, Robert Durst is not listed as Robert Durst. They don't know he lives there. They know a woman who actually happened to be one of his former classmates, Dorothy Siner. It was only when they started searching through the trash bags in the back of the building where they found a receipt to an eye doctor and it had Robert Durst's name on it. And this is how they were able to determine that Durst was Dorothy, that he was actually living there. So in addition to the receipt, they found a gun. It was a twenty-two caliber pistol, and it was registered in Durst's name. They ultimately apprehended Durst when he returned to that same eyeglasses shop. The owner called police, and the police went there and arrested him. He ended up, he fled. He did not appear for the bond hearing, but they later found him in Pennsylvania. I think... And I may be getting this mixed up with another of his arrests, so apologies if this is wrong, but I think he had gotten, like, really high and stole a sandwich, and that's how they found him in Philly. Apparently, marijuana was something, like, he did, like, his entire life. So he was pretty much always high.
1: Rafer madness. Madness. Makes you kill.
0: (laughs) It definitely does not. It makes you sleep. Um, And
1: steal Philly cheesesteaks. Apparently. Like, that part, I'm like, yeah, you've eaten a Philly cheesesteak? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds wonderful.
0: A year later is when Robert Durst is charged with the murder of Morris Black. He would explain to a jury and to the nation his version of events. So in 2003, the sensational trial begins, and Durst's legal team was spearheaded by Houston attorney Dick DeGuerin, and they laid out an elaborate argument of self-defense. Dick DeGuerin is most notable for a lot of cases that he's done, one of them being defending, defending David Koresh from the Waco Massacre, DeGarren received his law degree from the University of Texas at Austin, and he has taught advanced criminal defense there for over 25 years. He does it every single fall semester. He is one of the most notable attorneys in the state of Texas. If I were to show you a picture, you would recognize him, even if you don't recognize his name. He's very good at his job. Now, whether that is for good reasons or bad reasons... I will say he is an extremely skilled attorney, and so literally the fact that he teaches advanced criminal defense, and this is about how to get away with murder, essentially, this dude is literally Annalise Keating. Like, the real-life Annalise. Except for, like, okay. he's not, like... Not more,
1: Viola Davis?
0: Not Viola Davis, because, you know, no one can be her except her. Um, He's not recruiting his students to, like, help cover up murder or to murder people or whatever. But Dick DeGarren, very well-known, very expensive. So Robert Durst hired okay. him. Boat show. Yeah. So Durst admitted to cutting up Black, but he maintained that he did it in self-defense. How do
1: you cut someone up in self-defense?
0: Oh, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you his whole story in his words. And it's from the trial transcript.
1: Jesus, okay.
0: I will be giving you exactly why and how this happened. Durst said that he did not kill his best friend, but he did dismember him. And the defense team painted Black as this very questionable character who had formed a close friendship with Durst over their shared interest of guns. So on the night of September twenty eighth, two thousand one, Durst came home to his apartment to find Morris Black sitting there waiting for him, and he was uninvited. Black had a key to Durst's apartment, and he was watching television when Durst arrived. And Durst said that Black had this look on his face, and it, it looked like he was angry with him. Like something was going on. Durst gave no explanation as to why Black would have been mad at him. But he said that he immediately feared that Black had taken his gun and had it with him. And this gun, Robert stored in his oven. So when Durst asked Black where the gun was, Black allegedly stood up and points the gun at Durst. Durst and Black start to kind of wrestle. Durst is trying to get the gun away from him. And this results in the bruises that were found on Black's body parts. Durst said he grabbed for the barrel of the gun and the two of them tripped and fell... And during this fall, that's when the gun went off. But Durst says he never touched the trigger, but the gun went off.
1: That's not how guns work.
0: He then says he pushed himself up on his left hand and he saw blood on the side of Morris's nose. In their scuffle, the bullet had supposedly struck Black in the head and killed him. Though many of Black's body parts were found floating in the river later in Galveston in the bay... His head was never discovered. And so, as a result, police were never able to confirm exactly where Black was shot. Darce claimed in his testimony that he ran upstairs after this happened, trying to get help from a neighbor and have somebody call 911, but no one answered. He left the building, went to another neighbor. He was looking for a doctor, and he said, I wanted to get a doctor. All I could think of was getting a doctor. He's unsuccessful, so he comes back to his apartment and he saw Morris Black's body just laying there. And so he starts to clean up and he's walking around the body and he he saw how his head was in this pool of blood and he walked around it again and he went to the bathroom to wash his hands. Durst then told the court that after cleaning himself up, he walked to a nearby seawall and thought about his next steps. So he's just kind of outside, wandering by the bay, trying to figure out what he's going to do. And he keeps telling himself, you've got to get yourself under control. And then he says, I kept going over the situation in my mind that Morris was shot in the face with my gun in my apartment. And I had rented this apartment disguised as a woman. And he said, the police would, I mean, even before I got to the point to where the police were immediately going to look at who I am, Robert Durst, who happened to be renting this apartment as Dorothy, and find out that I'm this wealthy guy who rented the apartment well below his means, and there's all this media attention back in New York, I just didn't think I would be believed. I didn't think they would believe me. So this is when he starts to panic, because he's realizing what's happening. So he gets back to his apartment, and he he said that he intended to roll Morris Black's body up, like in the rug, and carry it out of the building, but he realized there was no way he could lift that. So from there... That's when he decided to dismember the body. And you gotta remember this is what this is his court transcript. This is what he's saying to the jury.
1: God, I know.
0: Like this is his words. So I just wanted to literally remind you of that. This is not a theory. this is what he is saying.
1: I'm like, you picked probably like the most unbelievable story to tell.
0: Oh, I'm not even done yet.
1: Oh good
0: so he then says i somehow got it into my mind that morris black had there was a bunch of tools in his apartment several saws and an axe and hammers and other stuff like that and i got the idea that the body rolled up in the drop cloth that i was gonna cut it in half he ends up you know cutting the limbs off the torso and the head off of it and he says i remember blood everywhere i remember like i was looking down on something and i was swimming in blood He then detailed in his testimony how he next went to the hardware store to get some plastic garbage bags, and he stuffed those bags with the dismembered body parts before he drove to the Galveston Bay and threw them in. Prosecutors argued that the shooting was the cause of the death, and that the dismemberment took place post-mortem. Nevertheless, the defense contended that he was not guilty of murder. District Attorney Joel Bennett for the prosecution argued that you don't butcher Someone, you know, put him in all these pieces, bag him up, and dump him in the bay because there's an accident. Like, that is intentional. Yeah. But the jury was not convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that Durst had intentionally murdered Black. Backing up a little bit to Dick Garen again, so during jury selection, Daguerren and his co-counsel, Mike Ramsey, they disposed of one major problem in this whole case by reminding the potential jurors that their job was to focus on Black's murder, not the dissection of his body. The defense convinced the jury that Black was a violent and dangerous man. He had murdered a soldier in Japan years ago. He had threatened a number of people in Galveston. Yet, he happened to be someone who Durst regarded as his best friend. Although there's no real evidence that can be found that they were truly best friends. It was this story that they put together of like this odd couple, two grumpy old men who lived across the hall from each other. They would enjoy watching TV together in Durst's apartment and then they would go target shooting with Durst's .22. This is the story that the defense is putting together. Yeah. One of the big things is since Black's head had never been found, Durst's story could not be disproved. They didn't have the head and that was where supposedly he was shot and how he died and how it was a self-defense argument. And They didn't have his head so they couldn't disprove it. And so yeah. likewise, that's how the prosecution could not prove self-defense and there were only two witnesses and one of them's dead. So this was the moment when prosecutors from like New York and Los Angeles, you know, with Kathleen's disappearance and Susan's murder, they were certain that this Galveston case would be the one that put Robert into prison but Durst was acquitted in 2003 and he walked.
1: Holy shit.
0: And I am telling you, this is one of the biggest examples of, cause like we even compare this to OJ again, like, you know, I brought him up earlier, but like OJ never admitted that he did it. Robert Durst admitted he fucking dismembered his friend and threw his body parts into the lake or into the bay. And there's not, he's not hiding that. It's the argument of it being self-defense.
1: I just have no idea how you can convince a group of 12 people that you cut up someone after killing them in self-defense. Like, that's not...
0: Well, and it was, again, Dick DeGarren, the argument was, did Robert Durst murder Morris Black? That's what he was being convicted of. Not... Did Robert Durst defile and dismember the body after that? That's not what he's being convicted of. And this is, like I said, Dick Dick DeGaron is a fucking genius as a defense attorney. Whether that's for good or evil, I'm just, he is very good at his job. Because he takes the biggest problem, the elephant in the room, and that's, he's like, okay, I have to change the perception of this to be something that's different, that's positive, that doesn't make my client look like they're guilty. And by God, yeah. I, I just, I remember when I first heard this, and I'm like, you're fucking telling me that Robert Durst described this whole series of events in which his friend dies, he freaks out, chops them up, throws them in the river, or in the bay. I don't know why I keep calling it different bodies Changing of water. the
1: body of water. I don't know. Yeah.
0: But that he admits all of that, and he goes scot-free. Nothing. No jail time.
1: Also, and just why didn't wasn't he also being charged with, like, desecration of human remains? Abuse of a corpse. Like, why is that not also things?
0: I mean, that's a good question. But the point of it is, he walked. Shit. So then that brings us to 2015, when HBO released their docuseries, The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, by filmmaker Andrew Jarecki. So this documentary series, like I said, it is so good. And if you have the time, I think it's six parts. So it is about like six hours. If you have the time, it's on HBO. Watch it. If you don't want to find out what happens, then here's your spoiler alert. But honestly, if you haven't heard it by now, then you're not following the Robert Durst case. And that's totally fine. Tyler, I'm talking to you. <laughs> oh, uh, I think I know what you're about to say. So... Durst, in, in, on the, in the last episode of this documentary, he was presented with a letter that he wrote to Susan Berman before her death, and then also a letter that was sent to the LAPD telling them that Berman was dead in her home. When you compare the handwriting... And the misspellings of some words on both of these letters, they looked very familiar. And this is just something that the filmmaker came across during this documentary and like people he was talking to. He ended up finding the letter that Durst had sent to Susan previously. And then he had the letter that was sent to the LAPD because, I mean, that's what mm-hmm. his documentary was about, was about Robert Durst and murders. And also, just a note, Robert Durst like willingly volunteered to be a part of this. And in this, he was wanting to, like, proclaim his innocence and show that he's fine, da 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 Well, he basically ended up getting himself caught. So at the very end, and this is literally how the documentary ends, and you're literally just like, holy fucking shit, are you serious? Did that just happen? I've never gasped so loudly. So he leaves the interview room after they had one of their last interviews, like this letter one, and he's clearly frustrated, and so he goes to the bathroom. But what he does not realize is that his mic is hot. It is still on and they are still recording. So he goes to the bathroom and then he's kind of standing in front of the mirror and he's recorded saying, what the hell did I do? Killed them all, of course. And he was arrested like a few hours before the series finale aired. Oh. Yeah.
1: I I mean, I knew there was like a hot mic situation where they kind of had him pseudo confessing. Did not know he was arrested.
0: Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is because of the letter. I mean, they did handwriting analysis and it was the same. And the word that he was misspelling was Beverly. I think he was adding like an extra E and it was part of her address. So he, he was arrested for the murder of Susan and preliminary hearings for the charge against first degree murder for the 2000 killing of Susan Berman began in April, 2017 and DeGarren is back as Robert's defense attorney. And just earlier this year, so on January 2nd, 2020, Durst admitted to writing the letter to the LAPD that he wrote that. So that oh. this came out and it's huge. And the trial for the murder of Susan Berman, it's set to begin on February 10th. So that is literally just a few weeks away. And we're going to see if maybe he's finally going to get convicted of something. Because now, however you want to argue the hot mic situation, whatever, definitely sounds like he is literally like, fuck, I just got caught. Yeah. And that he did it to all of them. So Fuck. Robert Durst is one of those monsters that has gotten away with things for far too long. Yeah. But yeah, I like I said, I cannot think of a better case <laughs> for an example of how to get away with murder.
1: Yeah. Okay. Your
0: answer is hire Dick Degueron.
1: <laughs> Basically. Shit. <laughs>
0: So we'll see what happens. And I, this is such a high thing, uh, like high profile case that will absolutely provide updates. You'll probably want to look on our social for very, very timely updates. Um, if we talk about it in an episode, it may not be because, hey, it may not happen like on Tuesday or whatever. So yeah. But yeah. Well, postmortem. Postmortem. So do you want me to start this one? Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. I I will say I think mine's the clear winner only because it's just so what the fuck out there. But I mean, yeah, but your case brought forward a lot of things that are I mean, it's insane to me that they're not more well known and they should be. And so, like I said earlier, I'm glad you brought your case forward. But I think as far as like the topic and the intensity, mine takes the cake.
1: I mean, yeah, I think your case was literally the definition of like, what the fuck? What the fuck? And mine is horrifying. And what it represents and what it brought up is, I mean, truly tragic. Yes. But I I think the intensity of your case and just, I don't know, I think it's interesting. In both our cases, there's no question that it happened. Yep. You know, neither of our cases is someone trying to proclaim innocence in the way of, like, I did not do this.
0: I know. And,
1: God, they're just, yeah, horrifying, but I think, yeah, yours is the more intense one.
0: Well, I know you will pick another killer topic next week, but I will say, this topic... Like I alluded to at the beginning, or not alluded to, like I said at the beginning, it's one that shows that sometimes justice just doesn't go the right way. And it's like, even though, and I won't put it, I can't put it past these lawyers for doing their jobs But the outcome of it is literally like this outcry where we're all like, what the fuck are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. That's where it gets so difficult because we always talk about, you know, the innocent people who are convicted of crimes. Well, this is the flip side of that. The people who are so guilty... And through some type of loophole, still get away with it or because of their standard of uh, living. I mean, to be honest, a lot of the times these people are wealthy individuals. And we've talked about that multiple yeah. times because Dick DeGarren is not a—he's not a public defender. He gets to pick his caseload. That type of defense is unreachable for most of us. And if you're in a position of actual innocence and you need this defense, a lot of times you can't afford it. Yeah. So it's just, there's a lot of things that are broken in our system. I think it's so fucked up that someone could do their job well. And it means someone gets away with murder. Yeah. Like, I think I've brought this up before how I'm like, would I be a defense attorney or a prosecutor? And it's like, there are shitty scenarios either way are there are some prosecutors who are prosecuting someone they know is innocent and there are some defendants that know they're uh defending a guilty person it just sucks either way but this is one that really sorry i'm gonna get off my soapbox in here in one second but this is just one that really irks me because i'm like man they fucking admitted that they did this and they didn't get any jail time
1: uh yeah But I think this is the perfect time for us to switch it up and move to something, anything, that's a little more lighthearted. And positive. Yeah.
0: Well, I will say, one of the things that I'm always super excited about when you get into a new year, which, I mean, it's still January, I can talk about New Year stuff, but traveling the traveling i'm going to do this year and so far Mm -hmm. i've got my italy and france planned for march and then i know i have my like mystery birthday trip in september we don't know yet what it's going to be this year but that is something i'm super looking forward to and i swear to god march is going to be here before we know it Which means I'm going to be in Italy, sipping on those Aperol spritz and red wine and being in Rome and like being like, hey, there's the Colosseum. Do you see it? That's the Colosseum. And that's the Roman Forum. And people are going to be like, I live here. But they'll say it in Italian.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm going to Denver. This month for a weekend. That'll be-
0: I love Denver. That is one of my favorite cities.
1: It's wonderful. I'm also talking to a friend who I have not seen her in years. Uh, We became friends in college, and then she and her husband, after college, moved to Australia because he's in the military. Oh. And they lived in Australia for a few years in Alice Springs. So, like, in the middle, in the desert. And I was like, I want to visit- and then they recently moved out. And I'm like, okay, well I guess I won't visit Alice Springs. Uh, but they live in Seoul now in South Korea. Oh. And I'm like What if I just, like, hopped on a plane to South Korea and was like,
0: hey, I'm here. I mean, hopefully you would give them a heads up.
1: No, I'm going to text them when I'm at the airport.
0: (laughs) Can you come pick me up? Like,
1: hey, hope you're not doing anything, but.
0: Also, can I sleep on your couch? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Dude, that would be so awesome. You should totally look into seeing if that could happen. Because that sucks that they lived in Australia and you didn't have the relationship with them still to go visit. But now it's coming back.
1: I did. I've just been poor, and Australia is expensive to fly to. Yeah, no, that's not a cheap Um, flight
0: by any means.
1: But also, I'm like, if I went to Australia, I'd much rather go to like Sydney, Melbourne, Sydney, something like that. But I'm like South Korea, Seoul. Yes. Also,
0: just want to put out a heartfelt, we're thinking about you to our Australia listeners. Um, I know there's yes. so much going on right now with the wildfires in your country, and um, for our listeners, if you want to help out, there are lots of resources that you can find online of places to donate to, things that are like food banks or
1: wildlife funds and first
0: responders, like everything. So if you feel so compelled, please get online and look. It's pretty easy to find a lot of resources. So Australia, we love you and we are thinking about you.
1: Absolutely. But with that, thank y'all so, so much for listening to this episode. Hope y'all enjoyed it. Um, If you did, make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you like. Uh, We love, love, love hearing from y'all and reading what y'all think.
0: Yes, and while you're at it, be sure to like and follow us on social. We are on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Send us messages. We love chatting with you guys.
1: Absolutely. And again, thank y'all so much. This is Blood and Wine signing off.
0: XOXO. Bye, you guys.
1: Bye.